When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the second part of our two-part episode about science and morality. We recommend listening to part one first. In part one, we explored some of the troubled history around attempts to draw moral lessons from science. We also asked why early humans evolved moral emotions like guilt, anger, and sympathy. It turns out that those emotions helped motivate us to cooperate, and cooperation helped us survive. But if we want to become better moral agents, there's a problem in relying too heavily on those moral emotions. When we try to define morality, we usually say something about its universality. Moral philosophers like Immanuel Kant and Jeremy Bentham affirm that our moral obligations extend to each person and that all people have equal moral worth. The Golden Rule says to treat everyone as we'd like to be treated. But historically, there's been another notion of what justice and morality might mean. In Plato's Republic, the philosopher Socrates tries to define justice. One of his companions suggests that justice means helping your friends and harming your enemies. That's the kind of morality that Queen Circe embraces in this discussion with her son Tommen in HBO's Game of Thrones. Your happiness is all I want in this world. I know. No, you don't. You can't possibly. Not until you have children of your own. I would do anything for you. Anything to keep you from harm. I would burn cities to the ground. You are all that matters. For someone like Cersei, the more you sympathize with your own group, the more you aggress against outside groups. Love of your own can mean burning others metaphorically or literally to the ground. That's not the kind of morality that many of us would claim to approve, but it is the kind evolution designed us to seek. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas. I'm Zachary Davis. Today, we're continuing our discussion of science and morality to ask how science can help us understand our own hearts and minds and how better understanding can help us become better moral agents. In his 2011 book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, Harvard cognitive psychologist Steven Pinker wrote this sentence, quote, the world has far too much morality. The sentence went viral as an internet quote, but it wasn't always taken in context. What Pinker was referring to was the way human beings can let their moral instincts and emotions, especially emotions like indignation and anger, drive them towards potentially immoral levels of violence. Our Moral sense licenses us to uh, commit aggression. We call it punishment. We call it justice. But when we uh, mete out punishment, we are deliberately and consciously harming someone and feeling uh, good about it. Now, that may be, in some cases, a necessary step toward maximizing human well-being. But we should realize that we get an autonomous um, pleasure uh, and, and, and sense, sense of righteousness out of 
punishing what we can conceptualize as uh, moral infractions. Our moral emotions can lead us to take pleasure in punitive violence. This tendency is all the more dangerous given that our moral emotions aren't always calibrated correctly. Righteous anger can lead us to punish someone too harshly. Conversely, sympathy for our friends can mean securing them unjust advantages while disadvantaging strangers. Our feelings can be so powerful that they lead us to mistake our subjective preferences for objective truth. Moral emotions are helpful, but they aren't infallible. This is especially true given why they evolved. As we noted in part one, Charles Darwin understood evolution as a competitive process in which only the fittest survive. It's hard at first to see how morality could evolve in these harsh conditions. But Darwin had an idea. He theorized that cooperation and morality could evolve if they helped us be better competitors. In his 1871 work, The Descent of Man, he wrote that humans could have evolved a moral capacity if that capacity helped their tribe outcompete other tribes. Quote, a tribe including many members who, from possessing in a high degree the spirit of patriotism, fidelity, obedience, courage, and sympathy, were always ready to aid one another and to sacrifice themselves for the common good, would be victorious over most other tribes. My loving sacrifice for our group is also a potentially violent defeat for their group. Morality binds and blinds. That's how Jonathan Haidt, today a psychologist at New York University's Stern School of Business, describes our evolved morality. He sees Darwinian tribal competition playing out in our political divisions, but he also turns to Darwinian science to explore how those divisions can be healed. Haidt was an early developer of moral foundations theory. Drawing on biology, anthropology, and psychology, Haidt and his colleagues identified six fundamental elements, six moral foundations, that are found in all human moral systems. The six foundations are care, fairness, loyalty, authority, sanctity, and liberty. Haidt explained the theory at a 2013 talk at the Howenstein Center. Think of these as being like taste buds. Ta you know, your tongue has five different taste buds. We all have the same taste buds, but yet there are so many different cuisines in the world. Every moral system involves at least some of the six foundations but not in the same combinations or degrees. Different groups draw on different foundations. This theory explains why two groups that both have strong moral values can each perceive the other as lacking in morality. They have different moral palettes. American conservatives, for example, taste different values than liberals. There's this sanctity taste bud. The right likes it, especially the social conservatives. The left doesn't like it or doesn't use it. In general, Haidt says, liberals taste only three foundations, primarily care, but also fairness and liberty. Conservatives, by contrast, taste all six. All the moral foundations matter highly to them. Uh, social conservatives build their morality on all six foundations. They get positive scores on all six of these foundations, whereas the left rejects three. They positively reject loyalty, authority, and sanctity. Because liberals and conservatives build on different moral foundations, they arrive at different notions of what morality is. But if my political opponents don't share my morality, I perceive them as immoral and dangerous. If you disagree so fundamentally on what morality is and how we should run our nation, it stands to reason uh, that you're going to demonize each other. Demonizing another group as immoral is precisely what licenses us to commit aggression against them. 
as Pinker says, under the name of justice. This is a problem that Harvard moral psychologist Joshua Green is trying to solve. I actually think the moral law within is a mixed blessing. It, it allows us to get along with each other, but it also creates the modern moral problems that we face. This is Green at a 2013 talk for the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs. He's discussing his book, Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them. There are two kinds of moral problems, Green explains. One is the conflict between me and my group. My group needs me to be helpful, to be fair, to follow moral norms. My self-interest inclines me to cheat, to hoard, basically to be selfish. This is the me versus us problem. It's one our early ancestors faced, and it's one that evolution worked to solve. Its solution was those moral emotions like sympathy and guilt. They do a pretty good job of helping us overcome our selfishness and cooperate with our group. But the modern world confronts us with a different problem. Not me versus us, but us versus them. And so the modern moral problem is not how do you stop people from being bad? How do you stop people from being immoral? I mean, that's a problem too. The modern moral problem is what do you deal with a, how do you deal with a bunch of different moralities with people all trying to, get, trying to live together? And of course, with people having all of the self-serving biases that you see at the individual level pulling for me, you see it at the higher level pulling, pulling for us. The modern moral problem is that mobility, changing demographics, and globalization bring us into contact with people who, as Haidt says, build their moralities on different foundations than we do. This is a problem evolution never equipped us to face. Our ancestors' communities were smaller, their values more homogenous, but ours is a pluralist world. We're surrounded by groups with different values, religions, and moral frameworks. So we need a strategy for finding the common ground we share and for dealing with our differences. Science can help us with both. Ultimately, it's hard for me to imagine a coherent notion of morality that doesn't uh, promote human well-being, that doesn't have at least uh, a consequentialist component. Um, I think we can, we can characterize human flourishing in a way that is, um, uh, achieves widespread assent, cutting across all of the differences across cultures. But uh, most people, most of the time, would agree that um, life is better than death and health is better than sickness. And uh, satisfaction of basic human needs like hunger and comfort are better than um, hunger and uh, poverty and uh, want. Therefore, if qualities like longevity, uh, literacy, basic education, freedom have increased over time, as opposed to childhood death, maternal mortality, starvation, disease, war, uh, violent crime, that is progress, moral progress. Reason and science can help us identify the most widely shared moral values and successfully promote them. Most of us do believe in basic moral goals, like protecting innocent lives and alleviating suffering, and celebrate scientists' success in saving lives and relieving pain. But we do still disagree on questions like, what counts as an innocent life? What system of government best promotes well-being overall? What other values, like self-expression or community, help us flourish? And how do we balance them when they conflict? Our different answers to such questions reflect our different moral palettes. But here, too, science can help us find ways to communicate and compromise. We can react with suspicion and aggression when someone doesn't share our moral framework. It's tempting to see that person as immoral. But if we think back to moral foundations theory, 
we might see that they are differently moral. They taste a different set of values than we do. We might still disagree with them, but seeing them as a moral agent makes us less likely to demonize them and more likely to cooperate with them. Cooperation becomes even easier if we understand a little moral psychology. Joshua Green has developed a model for how our moral minds work. The key thing is that we actually have two different processes for moral decision-making. One draws on our gut reactions, our immediate emotions and intuitions. Green refers to this as fast thinking. Then there's a more controlled, conscious, rational cognitive process. Green calls this slow thinking. The key to becoming a better moral agent, Green says, is learning which kind of thinking to use for which kinds of problems. My general advice is when it comes to the morality of everyday life, of individuals versus, uh, versus groups, me versus us, selfishness versus morality, think fast, mostly. Uh, but when it comes to the problems of the modern world, you're going to have to think slow. When our different moral frameworks lead us to clash with them, it's time to table our moral emotions and engage our cognition. For example, we can identify those values we all agree on, like improving basic measures of health, and rationally analyze strategies to pursue these values effectively. You might say, I get this all the time, well, you know, if you're looking at evidence for, for evidence about what's going to promote people's happiness, of course, my side's going to say what I want promotes people's happiness, and the other side's going to say what I want is going to promote people's happiness. Well, that's true. But at least there's a fact of the matter. At least with you know, 10 steps forward and nine steps back, we can figure out what actually promotes uh, human happiness and what actually doesn't. And it's a messy, biased process, but at least there's a, there, there's a tractable goal. There's a cautionary side to this story too. When it comes to figuring out human happiness, science can sometimes get it wrong. An extreme example might be the 1993 film Jurassic Park. Genetic engineers use recovered dinosaur DNA to bring extinct dinosaurs back to life. Shortly before the park's security system fails and the dinosaurs start running wild, the mathematician Ian Malcolm warns the park's creator, John Hammond, about the dangers of his project. Um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Of course, Jurassic Park is a work of science fiction, and some scientists caution that paying too much attention to fiction like this can harm serious scientific projects by making people unduly afraid of new technology. But if genetically engineering dinosaurs is a work of fantasy, genetically modifying humans is not. Francis Galton's eugenics of, quote, selective breeding was a 19th century method for improving humans. Today, scientists are looking at a new way. So today, I see a new eugenics kind of bubbling to the surface. It's supposed to be a kinder, gentler, positive eugenics, different you know, than all that past stuff. But I think even though it's focused on trying to improve people, it could have negative consequences. This is biologist Paul Knopfler in his 2017 TED Talk, 
The Ethical Dilemma of Designer Babies. He explained that scientists using a new form of technology called CRISPR could genetically modify human embryos. Potentially, parents could design their embryonic babies to have all kinds of, quote, upgrades, from altered physical appearance to stronger immune systems. Knopfler noted that the United Kingdom relaxed its normally strict laws to allow the creation of genetically modified humans, quote, with the noble goal of trying to prevent a rare kind of genetic disease. Preventing disease is a noble goal. Health is one of the most widely accepted human values. Still, Knopfler and others worry about moving too fast towards that single goal without thinking through the larger questions at stake. And it really worries me that some of the top proponents of this new eugenics, they think CRISPR is the ticket to make it happen. So I have to admit, you know, eugenics, you know, we talk about making better people. It's a tough question. You know, what is better when we're talking about a human being? It is a tough question. And it's a question the scientific community needs to grapple with now. In his talk, Knopfler estimated that science was 15 years away from being able to create designer babies. But just a year later, in November 2018, the world got a stunning piece of news. Too beautiful little Chinese girl. This is the doctor who changed the future of the human race and let the world know on YouTube. He Jianhui stunned the scientific community with the claim he pushed the boundary no one else had. He says he genetically edited human embryos, not just for research, but for implantation, leading to the world's first births of genetically altered humans, baby girls born in China from embryos designed to be resistant to HIV. As this news feature from CNN describes, the babies had been genetically altered using CRISPR technology for just the kind of upgrade Knopfler described, immunity to a disease. But the reaction from the scientific community was one of concern, as we hear from scientists on CNN. A line has been crossed that should not have been crossed. It's very disturbing. It's inappropriate. And there has been a broad consensus in the scientific and ethical community that we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be making those kinds of permanent genetic changes to the human genome. This last speaker was Dr. Malia Fullerton, a professor of bioethics and humanities at the University of Washington School of Medicine, speaking in a 2018 interview. The field of bioethics attempts to align those things we can do with the things we should do. Bioethicists raise many concerns about scientific endeavors to remake human beings. Scientist and educator Leon R. Cass wrote, Though health and fitness are clearly great goods, there is something deeply disquieting in looking on our prospective children as artful products perfectible by genetic engineering, increasingly held to our willfully imposed designs, specifications, and margins of tolerable error. This quotation comes from Cass's 1997 essay, the Wisdom of Repugnance. The essay was written in response, not to CRISPR, but to cloning. In 1996, British scientists had succeeded in creating the first mammal cloned from an adult somatic cell, the sheep known as Dolly. Cass began his essay by stating, quote, a fateful decision is at hand. To clone or not to clone a human being is no longer an academic question. Today, a similar fateful decision is at hand about human genetic engineering. Dr. He's research was shut down by the Chinese government, and in 2019, he was sentenced to three years in jail. But he wasn't sentenced simply for modifying the baby's genes. A court found He and his collaborators guilty of illegal medical practices, 
According to Science Magazine, they, quote, forged ethical review documents and misled doctors into unknowingly implanting gene-edited embryos into two women. But what if couples and doctors actually requested to have genetically modified embryos? Hu's work suggests it's now something we can do. Is it something we should do? This is a practical and a moral question. And as both scientists and non-scientists know, it's not one that science alone can answer. Here's Ben Allen again, professor of mathematics at Emmanuel College. I don't think science tells us what's right. Um, I think science helps us understand ourselves and the world. And it's up to us in a, you know, individual moral or ethical sense to decide what we're going to do with that information. None of this is to say that there is something morally problematic about science itself. The only problem would be trying to turn science into something it was never meant to be a framework for making all decisions in human life. If we took scientific advancement as the sole standard of value, we might make that mistake of equating what we can do with what we should do. But few, if any, practicing scientists actually think in that way. They freely acknowledge that science cannot tell us what moral decisions to make with the information it offers. But on the other hand, if we are really trying to get the right moral decisions in an ever more complex world, we need all the information we can get. Maybe science can't say what our ultimate moral value should be. But what happens when we want to make our values a little less ultimate and a little more embodied? I might say I value justice, but which social and political arrangements are most likely to reduce injustice and fraud? That's an empirical question that needs to be researched. If I want to be an effective moral actor in the world, I need to understand all kinds of things about the world. And that's what makes science so relevant to morality. Science can't give us our moral goals, but it can help us be as effective as possible in pursuing them. If we want to act more cooperatively, for example, mathematics can show us a way there. We need to create systems that use our empathy to get us to act well, rather than, you know, activating our more selfish tendencies, which we also certainly have. Mathematics allows you to um, ask what if, and ask what if in a lot of different kinds of ways um, to instantly change the rules of a society or of a model and see what the consequences of those are. Um, so um, we were able to look at you know, thousands and thousands of different shapes of networks and filter out what, what shapes were the most conducive to cooperation. Allen's mathematical modeling can project the consequences of different social arrangements easily and quickly to calculate which ones best help us cooperate. These findings could be vital in helping solve large-scale problems like climate change. When we think of ourselves as one person among the Earth's entire population, our connections to other people feel weak. But when we organize in smaller groups, strong relationships can push us to make change. But we need to build these cooperative networks on a lot of different levels. We can't necessarily just rely on the international community of countries, but as individuals, we need to be forming our own networks and um, encouraging each other to press our institutions to make the changes that we need. Mathematics can help us find the social arrangements most likely to activate our empathy. Psychology, in turn, 
suggests how not to activate our selfishness and aggression. This is what science can make us better at. Recognizing that the human moral sense uh, has quirks and limitations by uh, being a, a product of evolution, the better to recognize those uh, shortcomings to uh, overcome them. By identifying how our moral psychology works, we can, we're better equipped to uh, spot divergences between our moral psychology and our best argued normative ethics. Uh, and we can recognize in ourselves some of the blind spots and uh, illusions of our moral sense, the better to overcome them. Once we perceive our own shortcomings, we might approach other people a little more humbly. Self-understanding can overcome self-righteousness. That's how Jonathan Haidt thinks we can step out of the moral matrix and start solving our moral problems together. Here's Haidt again at his 2008 TED Talk on the moral roots of liberals and conservatives. A lot of the problems we have to solve are problems that require us to change other people. And if you want to change other people, a much better way to do it is to first understand who we are, understand our moral psychology, understand that we all think we're right, and then step out, even if it's just for a moment, step out of the moral matrix, just try to see it as, as a struggle playing out in which everybody does think they're right, and everybody at least has some reasons, even if you disagree with them, everybody has some reasons for what they're doing. Step out, and if you do that, that's the essential move to cultivate moral humility. The epigraph to Green's book, Moral Tribes, is a quote from the Russian author Anton Chekhov. Quote, man will become better when you show him what he is like. 21st century science, from psychology and evolutionary biology to neuroscience and mathematics, is making unprecedented pathways into the human body and brain to tell us what we are like, how we reason, how we feel, where our feelings fall short, and how our reasoning can reach farther. These discoveries can help us become better moral actors. So should we bring science into our discussion of values? It would be morally irresponsible not to. This episode was produced by Maria Devlin-McNair. Ministry of Ideas is produced at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, me, Zachary Davis, and Maria Devlin-McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us in a few different places. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I want to tell you about a great episode of the Hub & Spoke podcast, Soonish. Origin Story from host Wade Rausch is a beautiful exploration of audio, science, and personal narrative from the founding father of our podcast collective. And it's also a delightful listen. Take a minute and tune in at soonishpodcast.org. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.